And if you find your Bibles, again, hopefully given on the way in, we're about to hear a few verses from Luke's Gospel read, and then Matt will come and speak to us from them. If you're not familiar with Luke, it's one of four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. Uh, so the testimony of eyewitnesses, what Jesus said, what he did. And to set the scene for this particular reason, Jesus, he's at a dinner party, uh, but he's already stirred things up slightly. Uh, it's kind of social taboos that he's broached. He told off first the guests because they're all going for the most honoured seats. He's saying, don't do that. Uh, be a little humble. Then he's turned to the, the man who invited him round for dinner and has said, you know you've invited the wrong people. You've just invited people who you think are going to invite you back for dinner. Next time, invite some people who uh, are less well-off. So he's already caused a bit of a stir. And then we get at this little exchange. The reading is from Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is God's word. And uh, let me add my welcome. My name is Matt Fuller. And it's uh, lovely to uh, have you here this evening. If you're coming for the first time, you're very, very welcome. It is a delight to have you with us. And um, my privilege is to, uh, to speak from this uh, little passage just for a few minutes. Uh, so let's, um, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the master storyteller that he is. We pray that we look at this little story. Some of us may know it, others will not. But we pray we understand what he's saying, the, the surprise that is here. And so we respond rightly to him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, is heaven worth getting excited about? I, I guess in one sense that's very much the question thrown up by a passage such as this is heaven worth getting excited about? And if so, do you get in? How do you get in? Now, heaven, I, I take it that most people would view it as a good place. Yeah, just in common parlance or in culture, secular culture, it's a good place. So you just think of the amount of songs that have heaven in it. So uh, it's a little bit dated, I know, but um, as Tom Cruise woos Nicole Kidman on the racetracks of uh, Days of Thunder, uh, the band strike up and the cry is, show me heaven. I won't sing it for you, but do you remember that one? Show me heaven. Or you go back a little bit further, heaven, 
must be missing an angel, um, because, you know, which is you. Um, you know, all these things, it's nice, isn't it? It's not, you know, heaven, it's just generally a, a nice place. You're so wonderful, you must have come from heaven, that sort of thing. My personal favorite of the songs with the word heaven in it is, um, I'd rather be in hillbilly heaven than honky tonk hell by Kenny Chesney. Not quite as well known that one. You couldn't sing, you couldn't sing that one with me, could you? No, why would you? But heaven is obviously a good place in common parlance. Or, in fact, it's just a good thing. Perhaps it's more commonly how it gets used today. So recently I went into uh, uh, the local coffee shop and I was offered heaven in a cup. Well, I felt obliged to investigate that for you and for the sake of this evening. So (laughs) what is heaven in a cup? It was a white chocolate mocha that was special on that week. And so I tasted it, and to my mind, to be honest with you, it was foul. Uh, It was a little just far too sweet and sickly. But anyway, there it is. The promise is heaven in a cup, i.e. heaven is a nice thing. It's a good thing. We all like heaven, don't we? But is it real? It's an obvious question. Obviously, in common parlance, it's a good thing, but is it real? No, throughout history, there have been those who have rejected violently to the concept of heaven, like a Marxist group, someone obviously like a Karl Marx, complaining that heaven is the opiate of the masses, i.e. if you give people the view of heaven in the future, you can just domesticate them and uh, subjugate people now, uh, and it'll stop them doing anything significant here and now, like revolting, uh, having a revolution, which of course he wanted. But um, you'd have to say empirically that isn't true. So Christians are those, of course, who believe they're destined to spend eternity with God in his remade heaven. And yet Christians are often at the forefront of work here and now, not to build their own kingdoms, their own thrones, but charitable work. So um, uh, the largest relief and development agency in the world today is not Oxfam, not Save the Children, but it's World Vision. Christian organization employs 40,000 people in 100 countries. I mean, just a throwaway comment. But why do they do such a thing, just trying to improve the working lives of people in the developing world? Because, well, because they have a very clear view of heaven and the God of heaven. They want to serve people here and now. It doesn't stop you being active. It promotes it uh, in the here and now. Then, of course, that some people get grumpy and say, uh, I, I guess there'd be a strain of thought uh, in new, new atheism, which would say, oh, despicable the concept of heaven. It justifies atrocities in the here and now because people think they get rewarded in the, in the, uh, in the uh, forever after. And of course that can be true. I've got to admit that. There are suicide bombers. No, worse, the greatest one of recent times. Uh, a decade ago in 9-11, of course, people think they will martyr themselves murdering to get to heaven. Appalling. You don't need to be any kind of religion to do that. You look back at the 20th century or the 21st century, you look at a Mugabe in Zimbabwe, he doesn't claim to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or anything. He's still quite capable of being wicked. As were Mao in China in the 20th century or Stalin. I mean, you don't need to be silly about these things. You don't need to have a view of the of the uh, forever after in order to commit evil here and now. It's a nonsense. People can commit evil, whatever ancillary beliefs they have. Now, heaven is a real place, say the Christians, and it's a good place, and we think of it in those terms. And for most of us, there is a point in our lives 
where we want it to be true. Does it make it so? But we do desire that that is the case in order to make sense of life on this world. Otherwise, you can live for 70, 80 years on this planet and then... So what? A life that isn't examined or assessed in any way is pretty frustrating. I used to be a school teacher a number of years ago, and um, it was very obvious. I mean, you, you, it was a bit naughty, mildly naughty, I guess. Uh, but yeah, school kids, secondary school kids, if you listen to them, they'll happily tell you which teachers they like and which teachers they don't like. And, you know, there's normal conversation. You'll never guess what, you know, you'll never guess what Mr. Cornwall did today. I don't know what, I don't want to know what Mr. Cornwall did today. I don't want to know what Mr. Cornwall did today. What did he do today? And, um, you know, you have this sort of, you know, this, you know, because you here. But it was, they'd be very obvious about which teachers cared about their work or not. The classic, you know, you'd be there, so you're talking to them and say, oh, Mr. So Mr. Evans, he doesn't do any marking. I'm sure Mr. Evans marks your work. Yeah, but not really. He never pays attention. You see him marking sometimes, he just goes, tick, 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 tick. He'll be talking to you while he's just putting red on the page. No, 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 I'm sure that's not true. It is so. We insert rude words into our homework and he never notices. <laughs> I wrote last week, Mr. Evans is a... I don't want to know about that. He ticked it, sir. I go... Now, of course, school children cotton onto this quite quickly, and to the teachers who don't bother marking their work properly, they don't bother working. The teacher who puts lots of effort in, makes comments, suggests how they can improve, they work hard for that. Because an unassessed piece of work, who cares? An unassessed life, to be honest, who cares? Who cares where it ends up? Forbes magazine posted recently uh, its uh, recent report of the, the richest people in the world. They have a whole number of lists of different uh, people who are wealthy and categorized in different ways. The one I enjoy most of all, it's a, bit, it's a bit silly really, but the one I enjoy most of all is the richest people of history. And there's a bit of sort of guesswork on interest rates, etc., etc. but I think it's still quite funny. And anyway, the richest person in the whole of history apparently is John Rockefeller, if you adjust for inflation, well done him. Um, uh, number two is J.P. Morgan. Hi- bizarre, highest English person was Elizabeth I. Really? Really? More than Victoria? Mm, not sure about that. Anyway, who cares? Uh, it's a lot of fun. But the highest ranked person who is alive, well, that was quite interesting, was number 31, Carlos Slim, 73, uh, 73 billion pounds he's worth, a Mexican telecoms billionaire. Uh, he's at number 31. So in one sense, what of the obvious question, the 30 richest people who have ever lived on this planet, apart from their money, what have they got in common? They're dead. So that was nice. If this life is all there is, oh, we do want there to be a little bit more. And that instinct, the Bible says, that's right. That's right. That longing that is placed within us is not arbitrary. It's not a malfunction of evolution. It's placed in us by the living God because we are made to be eternal creatures. And we'll either live with him in delight and glory forever or we'll be separated in misery forever. But we're eternal creatures at our heart. And so Jesus tells this little parable to explain that you really don't want to miss out on heaven. It is so wonderful. But some will. Sadly, some will miss out.
Uh, Richard gave us a bit of context to what's going on. Uh, Jesus is at a dinner party with a bunch of, uh, well, to be honest, they're fairly unpleasant. They're arrogant, religious types, the religious elite of the day with their mitres and their funny hats. And uh, not that you're bad if you wear one of them necessarily, but um, they're the religious types of their day. And uh, Jesus is encouraging them to have compassion, the compassion on those who don't have much. And so it's a bit of an awkward dinner party. So Jesus, he's kind of the bono of his day. All the statesmen want to be seen with him, but he just comes out with awkward comments and wears big sunglasses. I don't know if Jesus did that. But the, um, so he's a bit awkward. You want to be seen with him because he's the man of the moment. The crowds adore him. He's very successful. You just never quite know what he's going to say. Uh, he's a little blunt in some of his comments. And so in verse 15, we had a slightly awkward exchange just before that. And uh, in verse 15, someone tries to change direction in the conversation. He's sort of a bit more socially smooth, this person. <clears throat> anyway, enough of that, Jesus. Uh, won't it be great when we're all in heaven? That's what he says, verse 15, essentially. Blessed is the man who will eat. I don't know if he spoke like that. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, essentially, yeah, it'll be amazing. But not all of you will be there. Well, that didn't go so well in soothing things over. It'll be amazing, but not all of you will be there. And the issue, as it often is, is we want to enter on our terms. And Jesus said, there's only one way you enter the kingdom of heaven. is trusting that I die for you. That's it. It's the only way in. And he tells a little story. Three little things. Let's break it down in in this way. Three little things. The first is this, verses uh, 16 and 17 at the beginning there. God invites us to his banquet. Okay? God invites us to his banquet. As we had had read at the beginning. The Bible has many many ideas or, or pictures, better metaphors, descriptions of what heaven or the new creation, to be more accurate, will be like. But the most common one that the Bible chooses to use is of a banquet, a feast. And of course, that's brilliant because it works in every culture, the idea of a banquet. And I don't know your backgrounds, all of you, or how wealthy or your social status. I don't know what a banquet means to you, whether it means dinner intimately with the Queen, whether it means uh, going to an expensive Gordon Ramsay meal, whether it means the Colonel's all-you-can-eat chicken banquet in a bucket. I don't know what a banquet is for you, but it works in all cultures, and you know that. So if you go to a big Greek banquet, of course there'll be dancing and uh, wine flowing. And if you go to an Irish banquet, of course, a wedding, an Irish wedding, of course there'll be dancing and uh, fiddling and Guinness. And uh, uh, if you go to a celebrity wedding, there'll be a wag and there'll be Hello Magazine, etc., etc., and all those sort of things. There are certain things that go uh, with different cultures, but a banquet, it just works. Every culture has this sort of thing. So let's be British for a moment. Come join us if you're not. Uh, And uh, think of it in these terms. A magnificent 17th century room. Fabulously ornate. Laid out with wonderful dinner tables. And at every place, there's more cutlery than you could possibly use in a week. It's student heaven. I will never have to wash up again (laughs) with all this cutlery. We can just leave it festering. There's a canteen of cutlery 
for every single person. And the menu is just magnificent. Twelve courses, and there's a sort of fun of Jamie Oliver. There's a, there's a chocolate of Nigella Lawson. And uh, the wines are magnificent. There's a Petrus Pomerol from 86. There's a Chateau Lafitte from 82. And they're just a the mouthwash. Um, because the wines are so good. Of course, there's the best company possible. Unlike some sort of some occasional random weddings, and you, who am I next to? I have no idea who I'm next to. And uh, you sit next to great Aunt Ethel, and she's mad, and you have an hour of her. No, it's the best company possible. Now, it's a metaphor, of course, and yet it expresses many of the truths that the Bible would have as explicit statements elsewhere. So heaven is physical. Because actually, in the future, God will remake heaven and earth. The two are combined. It's a physical place that you can walk around. If you never get to see the Grand Canyon in this life, if you never get to see the Great Barrier Reef, you never get to uh, uh, climb Everest in this life, don't panic. You will have all of eternity to do such a thing. This world, perfectly remade, it's a physical place not wafty, daydreamy. It's full of people. But again, the company's good. So imagine, for for some who are married, for others you can imagine this, on a wedding day, on your wedding day, everyone you, pretty much everyone you love is there. Your Your best friends are there. The family you love is there. And even the mad relatives that you very rarely see, Uncle Ted, who's always a bit inappropriate. It doesn't matter because it's your wedding day, you still say Uncle Ted. And you give him a big hug and he still says and something wildly inappropriate in your ear. But it doesn't matter because it's that sort of day. The company is magnificent. And you know there are those moments in life, whatever they may be. You're at the top of a mountain. It's an idyllic day with the one you love the birth of a child, whatever it may be, those moments of, wow. Gosh, I, I just wish this could go on forever. But of course, heaven is the place where it does. Because in this moment, we have our crying, crowning moments of excitement, and then, well, there's always Monday. But in the new heaven, no, there's none of that. It just goes on and gets better. A wonderful place. And best of all, we'll be the host God himself will be the host, be in his company, amazed at who he is. Now, in one sense, how does that work? I, I don't know quite. Is it like a theater that we just sit around? It was very good. Ooh, there's a new gag. I haven't said it. I don't know. But I do know the enjoyment of someone else. I don't know if you go to the theater much and enjoy such a thing. Uh, a while back, um, one of the best things you went to a while back, uh, my wife and I, was One Man, Two Governors, you know, the sort of comedy with James Corden uh, has gone and won all the awards on, on Broadway as well. And it had been well-reviewed, so we were quite looking forward to going, and we went, and it was fabulous. And there's that funny thing when something comedy is so good in front of you, because you turn to the person, you know, someone you know is on one side, but you turn to the person on the other side, and you just give... <laughs> <laughs> You never met them before, and you sort of, um, you sort of gurn at them and laugh, and the people in front of you turn around and say, <laughs> because such is your enjoyment of what's going on on stage. You have this sort of bonhomie and camaraderie with these people you would just walk past in the street, and it's fun and it's lovely. 
and you go you go and get your ice cream at half time and you this because the host is so good and at the heart of heaven this picture of heaven is the host the lord god himself heaven is a wonderful place and god invites us to his banquet so god's word to you and to me is verse 17 come Come. You've had notice before, but come. Not straight to heaven, that's not what he's saying. But come and trust in my son, Jesus Christ. Come and trust that on that cross thousands of years ago, he died in your place. He took your sin and you got his perfection. Trust, believe that. Come and trust in my son. Enter into a friendship with me now, today, that in the future will issue in this paradise of heaven and banquet. Now, I do hope you know it. Essentially, that's the essential message of the Christian faith. Come and trust in Jesus Christ. You do know that, don't you, that Christianity is not come to a jumble sale, come to church. Nice as it is, it's quite nice to come to church. I like it. I'd come even if I wasn't paid to come. I like it. It's not, it's not come to a jumble sale or just come to church or come and be polite to your neighbor and come and live differently. It is come and trust. Trust that the man, Jesus Christ, who was God, died for you. Come. You can trust in him today. He'll issue in eternity. God invites us to his banquet. That's the first thing. Then you get this, uh, this group. Second little thing. Many have lame excuses, which is verses 18 to 21. Many have lame excuses. So verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Now, what's going on here? In the culture of the time, you'd have a double invite to a dinner. That's not wildly different to what you and I might do today. Can you come for dinner next, uh, next uh, in, you know, on whatever, the, the 20th of April? Yeah, I'm free on the 20th of April. Great. And the day before, you still all right for dinner? Yeah, I'm still on. See you tomorrow. Brilliant. This is a sort of double invitation. That's not unfamiliar to us. That's what's going on here. And all three of these guests are simply rude. Presumably, they'd said, yeah, yeah, we're on for dinner next month. But when it's all ready, they say, nah, got excuses. Now, once at a superficial glance, these look reasonable, but they're pretty lame. So the first, yeah, look, I, I know I accepted your invitation, but I need to go and look at my field tonight. Ah, yes. I guess it'll be very different in the morning. Obviously, you need to go and look at your field tonight. It's not going to move, is it? Well, the second, the oxen. Look, I know I said yes, but I need to go and stare at my bulls. I mean, this is the sort of cowboy equivalent. I'm, going, I'm washing my hair tonight. Hopeless, what is that? Or the third, I've just got married, I can't come. What? She can come. Are you that under the thumb? Has she locked you in the bedroom? What is wrong with you? Come. I can't come, I've just got married. What? What is that? feeble. And so verse 21, the man who has thrown the banquet is angry. 
Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, bring them in. He's angry. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of arrogant religious types who assume that they'll be in this heaven with God. They presume that their behavior will achieve for them a place at this banquet. And Jesus is being very blunt with them and saying, come follow me. The only way you get there is if you receive me, receive a gift from me. You have to be with me. Your own behavior will never get you there. You have to trust in me and trust in my death for you. That is the only way. Jesus says very bluntly, you will never get to heaven if you reject him. Send out an invitation. And unless you trust in his death in your place, you cannot spend eternity with God in heaven. Now, I don't know if uh, Christians or non-Christians, but I don't know how much time you've spent thinking about the Christian faith, what Jesus is like, what he taught, why he died. I hope you don't. I'd be ashamed if you had excuses a bit like these. God says, come, trust in my son, have friendship with me. And yet there are these slightly lame excuses. I've got a field to look at. I don't know what the modern equivalent is. I'm a box set bore. I'm through season two of The Killing and I now to watch season three. I haven't got time for anything else. I'm a box set bore. Or perhaps more commonly, well, I don't know. I'm quite busy. There probably isn't a God. Have you checked? This is so important. You'd want to check, wouldn't you? Please, for your own sake, you will check the evidence for the Christian faith before you say, well, there's probably no God and tell he's good. I can't be bothered to respond or do anything about this invitation. Or oxen. I've just got a load of oxen. I don't know what the modern equivalent is. I've got a massive deal on at work. Work is swamping me at the moment. I've set up my new business. I've just joined a new firm. I'm just starting a new thing. I just haven't got time. Okay, this is so important. Please, would you make time? Or I've just got married. Oh, for goodness sake, bring her too, unless she's locked you up. I don't get that as an excuse. Come. These people in Jesus' story, they just didn't get how phenomenal this banquet is. And so, oh, I've got other things on. No, no, you don't know what you're missing. Come. Have you got a good reason to reject God's banquet? Jesus says, come. And if you've never really spent the time considering the Christian faith, give it a go. Christianity Explored, which Richard alluded to, is a wonderful thing. Wonderful place to find out more. Actually, if you have spent time looking at the Christian faith, you, you, you come to church every now and again, but you've never come. That is, you've never personally said, yes, I trust in the death of Jesus Christ in my place. Can you hear him calling the Father saying, come, 
What are you waiting for? Will you come and trust in my son? God invites us to his banquet. Many have lame excuses. It's tragic. Thirdly, briefly, others will be thrilled to attend. Okay, verses 21 to 23. The man orders his servant then, verse 21, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, that there's still room. Well, then the master told his servant, "Why? or go out into the roads, the country lanes, make them come in so that my house will be full. Just get other people in. Now, Jesus is telling this story originally to an arrogant bunch of Jewish Pharisees, teachers, And I guess implicit in this story, Jesus is saying, look, I'm smashing this religious context wide open. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for good Jews. It's for anyone. Anyone from any place. Go and bring them in from the alleyways, from Britain, from the ditches. Scotland. No, I shouldn't have said that. Just go and bring them in from all over. Bring them in from anywhere. Jeez, I'm sorry. It's just cheap. It's cheap. It's cheap. I guess you'd have to say there'd be some pretty surprising people at this banquet. If you're there on that final day and enjoying the banquet with you, there'd be some pretty ropey characters there. People you might have walked past in Mayfair, sleeping rough. Maybe drug dealers who repented and put their trust in Jesus a few years ago. There's some pretty rough characters there, no doubt. And actually, there may be more of them than nice people, like you and me. Because if you know you're undeserving, the offer is extraordinary. That's the point Jesus is making here. If you know you're undeserving of an invitation to his banquet, the offer is extraordinary. Can you imagine for some reason tonight... Uh, the Queen's got a few spare places, and uh, so sends a servant out from Buckingham Palace into Green Park. Says, go and find the rough sleepers uh, sleeping on their benches and bring them in for dinner, and uh, they can all stay the night. So the servant uh, wanders out and says, hello, mate. But he doesn't say that, does he? Excuse me, sir. Um, uh, Her Majesty uh, invites you to dinner tonight. Persuades the man. It's a genuine offer. Look at me. Look at my regalia. Uh, look at my badges. I've got a party. It's genuine. I'm, it's a genuine offer. The queen invites you to come to dinner tonight and to sleep in the palace. Now, if you're persuaded that that's true, the homeless guy sleeping on a bench in Green Park, he's unlikely to say, you know what? I love my bench. I love my bench. And I love watching, you know, in the morning, the ants crawling up the leg. I just really, he's not going to say that. He's going to grasp hold of the offer. And if you know you're undeserving, the offer is extraordinary. If you know you've got no chance of getting into a place such as heaven, and Jesus says, it's a gift, you just trust in my death. That's an extraordinary offer. If you know you're undeserving, the offer is extraordinary. Jesus steps out of the story, verse 24, and puts it this way. The blunt ending, he says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. If you reject Jesus' offer now, 
There is no second chance after you've died. I know there's a blunt truth. But your chance to respond to the offer is now in this life. And once you've passed through to the next one, that's it. No second chance. There was a funny old exhibition on, at the uh, Tate Britain uh, a few months ago, 18 months ago, probably was now, maybe just over a year. Uh, the paintings of John Martin, it's called Apocalypse Now, but uh, John Martin uh, was a 19th century painter, and uh, he did vast canvases of heaven and hell. So sort of four meter by five meter pictures. This is what heaven will look like, this is what hell will look like. They were horrific I mean, there's sort of all the classic sort of pictures, you know, some burning fire, etc., that sort of thing. And uh, but these vast canvases, he was an important man in his day. So you paid your money and you go and saw this exhibition at the Tate. But of course, they didn't want you to take it too, too seriously. So uh, you go through the gift shop on your way out and then you get, you know, get a tea towel, the day of his wrath tea towel. So, <laughs> you know, don't take it too seriously. I know the paintings are a bit scary, but take a tea towel home and uh, mop your dishes with it. Ha, 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 ha. Anyway, it was all a bit odd. But the thing that struck me most of all was this. The advert on uh, the Tate's website for these, this exhibition had no paintings in it. It was just a two-minute clip. And it was of a woman. And she's in some sort of underground catacombs. And all alone. And she's sort of wandering around. And then there's to be the sort of coughing over here, and she's sort of nervously edge away. And then there's to be a vague hand lunging out to grab her, and she runs away. And this goes on for about two minutes. She's all alone. She's clearly very scared. And at the end, she finds a ladder. You think, oh, what a relief. She climbs the ladder, and it's just the same. On it goes. Horrible. Horrible, horrible. I don't know why they would choose such a thing to advertise this exhibition. And yet, biblically, that's quite a good picture of what it is to be shut out of God's banquet. With him is the place of joy and delight and feasting and laughter and companionship. And cut off from him is just miserable it's miserable it's awful to be shut out of heaven so do you get the point of this strange story God invites us to his banquet some will have lame excuses and they'll be shut out for the whole of eternity others they know they're undeserving the offer is extraordinary others will be thrilled to attend will throw away their sleeping bags and run for the palace. Others are just so thrilled when they hear what Jesus Christ has done for them. They'll change their lives around immediately. They know they're undeserving. The offer is extraordinary. I don't know if you're, um, uh, the, the, what sort of excuses you might get, you may sort of use, too busy. I don't know. But the Christian is one who says, I don't deserve heaven but I do trust in Jesus Christ to take me there. I trust in his death. I'm undeserving. His offer is extraordinary, and I want to go there. God invites us to his banquet. And in one sense, it's an RSVP, and you have to work out what you're going to do with it. Successful in life, prosperous, don't use that as an excuse. Come. 
think yourself a failure, made a hash of this life. Jesus says, come, trust in me. I'll take you to this wonderful place. Come. I don't know how many wedding invitations you get in a year. I don't know. We still get, um, I'm a vicar, so I get more than most probably. Um, a dozen, 15 a year, something like that. I don't know. There has been a shift over the years. 20 years ago, you'd be invited to a wedding and you were obliged to write a letter by way of response. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Cuthberts and Smythes and Jones, um, well, the Reverend Matthew Fuller will be delighted to attend the wedding of Flopsy and Mopsy on whatever, the 28th of March. Yours since it's off again. You had to write a letter. That's all changed. You know, I mean, you may not have been, you remember letter writing? Anyone remember writing letters? Okay. Um, with, with a pen. Um, but these days it's different, isn't it? Because if you, get a, if you get something through the post, they normally have a postcard with them and you tick a box and it's got an envelope and you send it back. Or you just have to send, you just click onto the website and say, yes, I'm coming. And of course, that's modern technology, but also because, I don't know, I take it, we're lazy. And you're more likely to get a response from people if you make it as easy as possible. Because if you have to write a letter, it's just too much effort for us to. God has sent out a letter. He sent out an RSVP. He says, come. Don't miss out because you're too busy. Don't think I'll get around to it later. Some other time. It's not important now. Because I don't know when the RSVP expires. It's either when Jesus returns to end this world or when you pop your clogs. Or when I do. I don't know when the RSVP expires. But it does. So hear the message of the Father as he says, Come. Trust in my Son. Tonight, today, be with me for eternity. Come. Let's pray together. Our Father, you're a good and generous God who makes a wonderful offer to come and join the banquet in eternity. Thank you that you're kind enough to warn us that often we'll make daft excuses Many will have lame excuses for not accepting this offer. But would you so persuade us that it is the most wonderful offer? Would we recognize ourselves as the undeserving, therefore the offer is extraordinary? Father, I pray for those gathered here this evening. For those who haven't yet come, please would you persuade them, I ask, of how wonderful it is. For those of us who have been Christians perhaps for years and are familiar with these truths, would you remind us, would you drive deep into us that coming to Jesus Christ was the best decision we ever took in our lives and we will spend the whole of eternity thrilled, delighted, overwhelmed that we came. We were undeserving. But the offer of Jesus Christ was extraordinary, and we thank you for it in his great name. Amen.